Thank you. Thank you for those kind words. It's a pleasure to be here. I haven't stepped foot in Colombia well, quite a while, I think. Well, the last conference was maybe 15 years ago, not Ibn Arabi, another one. And I used to uh, be involved with an encyclopedia here many years back. But let me get to Ibn Arabi. The, uh, the title of my talk, you may have noticed, is uh, The Doorway to an Intellectual Tradition. Uh, I got... I came up with the title when I heard the theme and I got thinking about how exactly uh, I would understand the notion of a living legacy. So, uh, and immediately the notion of the Islamic intellectual tradition came to mind. Now, by intellectual tradition, I mean the branch of Islamic learning that puts its primary effort into actualizing the intellect, aql, understood as a living awareness of the way things actually are. Those who can be classified as members of this tradition have usually been looked at looked back upon as Sufis or philosophers. They held that the final goal of all Islamic learning, and indeed of all religion, is to awaken people to their own intellectual and spiritual nature, which is a divine image found in the heart. One of the most famous members of this tradition, Al-Ghazali, sums up its role in the title of his magnum opus, Ihya Ulamuddin, giving life to religious knowledge or the sciences of the religion. And as Nick mentioned, it is certainly not without relevance that Ibn Arabi himself has been called Muhyiddin, that is, the one who gives life to the religion. Now, if we talk about Ibn Arabi's living legacy, we are suggesting that the life in question was passed on to those who came later and that it continues to survive. If a legacy is living, then it surely is not the legacy of books, for in themselves books are dead. It only makes sense to speak of the life of a legacy if it is found in living souls. What sort of legacy then are we dealing with? Perhaps we can find a succinct answer in a saying of one of the greatest of the early Sufi teachers, Abu Bakr al-Wasiti, who died 200 years before Ibn Arabi's birth. He said, anyone who lives through himself is dead, and anyone who lives through the real, al-Haq, will never die. Now this aphorism is a straightforward statement of Tawheed, the assertion of divine unity that is the first principle of Islamic thought. Al-Wasati is saying that what we call life is not in fact life because it is inseparable from death. God, however, as the Quran says, is the living who does not die. It follows that there is no true life but God's life, no true being 
but God's being and no true reality but the reality of the real. Hence, only those who live through the real will never die. In short, if Ibn Arabi left behind a living legacy, it will only be present in the awareness and consciousness of people who live through the real. Participation in this legacy demands passing beyond illusory life and joining with real life. The many thousands of pages that Ibn Arabi wrote provide ways of accessing this life. I want to focus on one way in particular, the way that forms the core of the intellectual tradition. It is nicely expressed in a maxim cited by Ahmad Sam'ani, a great teacher from Persia in the generation before Ibn Arabi. He said, recognition is the heart's life with God. Now the heart, in the Quran and the Hadith, is the center of life and consciousness. The tradition talks constantly about the need, and especially the Sufi tradition, to have the need to have a healthy and wholesome heart, which is an awareness that sees things as they are and acts appropriately. By placing awareness and understanding in the heart and not in the brain, Islam links up with much of the ancient world. This is perhaps most obvious with China, where both Confucius, Confucians and Taoists tell us that the primary human task is to rectify the heart. Even if most translators render the Chinese word for heart as mind, in an attempt to make sense to modern readers. Now, in Samani's terms, achieving the heart's life with God, an achievement that I take as the goal of the intellectual tradition, demands recognition. Now, the Arabic word here is ma'rifa. Scholars like myself typically waffle when we deal with this word. In verbal form, we translate it as to know or to recognize. And as a noun, we translate it as knowledge, science, and particularly in the context of Sufism, as gnosis. The active participle of this word, arif, is typically translated as gnostic. Another noun from the same root, erfan, which in classical text means exactly the same thing as marifa, has come to be used in Iran in recent centuries to designate Sufism in its more theoretical forms. There are major problems, however, with using the, word, the words gnosis and gnostic, the least of which is that people associate these words with an ancient Christian heresy. A deeper problem is simply that Arabic marifa is an everyday verb and noun. Whereas English gnosis is never used in daily conversation, except I think in this audience. Right? <laughs> Another problem with using the word gnosis comes up, and this is a major problem, in the translation of Arabic texts. This is a problem that can be observed in practically all translations of Sufi texts that are available in English. In discussions of the the Gnostics, the recognizers, as I would rather have it, the verbal form of marafa is frequently used to explain the sort of knowing in question, which is to say that the sense of the passage hinges on using the word marafa as a verb. 
But in English, we have no verb for gnosis. So the specific characteristics of ma'rifah gets lost in translation. Now in Arabic, the primary word for knowing, as most of you already know, is ilm. Scholars translate this word variously according to context, knowledge, learning, science. The basic distinction between ilm and ma'rifah coincides more or less with that between knowing and recognizing in English. Knowing is such a basic human experience that it cannot be defined, not least because it is presupposed by every definition. Recognizing is then a specific sort of knowing, namely discovering in yourself a knowledge that you already know. To speak of recognizing God is to suggest the Quranic notion that knowledge of God pertains to human nature. We are born with it, but tend to forget it. The goal of human learning is then to remember and recognize what we have forgotten. Here the Quranic teaching recalls Plato and his notion of anamnesis, the elimination of our amnesia. Other parallels are abundant in ancient texts. One of the better known is the teaching of Mencius, that the goal of life is to recover our lost heart. When we look at the use of elm and marifa in Arabic, we see that the, a clear distinction was commonly drawn between these two words. Knowledge that comes from the outside is elm. It is the information that we gain from a lecture or a book or a Google search. Knowledge that comes from the inside is called marifa. It is an unmediated knowledge, not received from any book or any teacher. Its truth is self-evident to the knowing heart. It may come to be known because of an outside stimulus, but once it is found, it is as if it has always been known. In terms of the Islamic creation myth, recognition of the true nature of things is latent in the heart because God taught human beings all the names when he created them. Now in discussions of epistemology, Muslim scholars often call knowledge from the outside naqli, transmitted. Those who gain a firm grounding in this sort of knowledge are then called the ulama, the knowers or the scholars. In contrast, knowledge that is discovered inside the heart was called aqli, intellectual. Those who found intellectual knowledge were commonly called urafa, recognizers or gnostics. The word recognizer was probably used for great Sufi teachers much more often than the word Sufi itself, which simply shows that Sufism was considered the preeminent path for achieving unmediated knowledge of things as they truly are. Now, the locus classicus for the use of the word marfa, in the intellectual tradition at least, is the famous maxim, man arafa nafsa faqad arafa rabba. Whoever recognizes himself recognizes his Lord. Most people, including myself, have translated this as whoever knows himself knows his Lord. But when we use the word know in this saying, and then we bring up the topic of Gnostics, we miss the connection, especially when the verb recognize, the Arabic verb for recognize, is used repeatedly in the discussion, as is so often the case. Oh, in terms of this famous saying, 
The recognizers are those who have recognized themselves for who they truly are, and as a consequence, they have recognized the real for who he truly is. Once they achieve this recognition, they have reached what Samaani calls the heart's life with God. Ibn Arabi often mentions Abu Yazid Bastami as one of the greatest recognizers of this Islamic tradition. He sometimes quotes one of Abu Yazid's sayings that nicely catches the distinction between knowledge and recognition, or between things known by way of transmission and things known by the heart's innate intelligence, directly and without intermediary. Abu Yazid is addressing possessors of knowledge, people like you and me who have taken almost everything we know from outside ourselves. He says, you take your knowledge dead from the dead, but I take my knowledge from the living who does not die. Now, it should be clear by now that when I say that Ibn Arabi is a doorway into the intellectual tradition, I am using the word intellectual in the specific meaning to which I have been alluding, that is, intellectual as contrasted with transmitting. In order to grasp the significance of Ibn Arabi's living legacy, it is important to have a clear understanding of the difference between these two sorts of knowledge. Transmitted knowledge includes language, history, scripture, and everything we study in schools and universities or learn from our environment and the media. Intellectual knowledge is another sort of knowing altogether because it must be discovered and recognized within ourselves. The usual example is basic mathematics. At the beginning, we may receive it from others, but once we understand it, we see it as self-evident. In contrast, transmitted knowledge always remains hearsay. So it never belongs to us. We can never be sure that it is true. If we believe that it is true, this can only be because we trust its source or because we have not bothered to think about how we gain the knowledge. In short, the general rule is that the intellectual that intellectual knowledge cannot be acquired by transmission and transmitted knowledge cannot be discovered within oneself. When Muslim philosophers discussed the distinction between these two sorts of knowledge, as they often did, it was usually because they wanted to distinguish between knowledge transmitted from prophetic revelation and knowledge discovered by self-recognition. What most people call religion, after all, is based on transmitted knowledge. Religion offers a worldview and a manner of living traced back to a divine intervention in history. And it is well to remember that our modern worldview is no different since it also is based entirely on transmitted knowledge. Perhaps the basic distinction between the modern and religious worldviews lies in the nature of the prophets who set the worldviews in motion. The great scientists and thinkers of the modern world make no explicit claim to superhuman sanction. Now, by far the most important of the intellectual sciences in the tradition is metaphysics. Its importance derives from the status of its subject matter, which is the real. 
the only reality that truly is. The philosophers acknowledge that the object they studied in metaphysics and the object that the ulama studied in theology were exactly the same thing. But the philosophers held that the ulama were hemmed in by their insistence on rooting their knowledge in the transmitted knowledge of scripture. They themselves, the philosophers, strove to know the real without dependence on transmission. They did this by disciplining their souls in order to gain access to supra-individual intelligence. Now, the worldview of the Muslim philosophers is, was not significantly different from that of the theologians or the Sufis. What was different was the language in which it was posed and the relative degree to which transmitted knowledge and intellectual knowledge played roles in its formulation. This general Islamic worldview was given its most extensive and elaborate treatment by Ibn Arabi. When Muslim scholars set down the Islamic worldview, they did so with the time-honored purpose of explaining the manner in which the one interrelates with the many. They typically described the descent of all things, their devolution, if you like, from the first manifestation of the real. This first manifestation was called by many different names, such as the first intellect or the Mohammedan spirit. As things descend ever further from the real, they are sustained by the real at every stage of their unfolding. Eventually, each thing that emerges from the one reaches a, a furthest limit and then it rever- in, in the descent, and then it reverses direction and is gradually reintegrated into its origin. In briefest terms, this worldview held that the one gives rise to the many, the one sustains the many, and the one brings the many back to itself. Now, Ibn Arabi offers a number of different versions of this scheme. In one of his better-known versions, about which most of you, I'm sure, have heard, he describes the entire cosmos as the breath of the all-merciful. Each thing in the universe is a letter, a word, a sentence, or a book uttered by God and situated at an appropriate level of deployment within God's own breath, just as our own spoken words are situated within our breath in a specific order. Each created thing is thus a precise enunciation of the real being, and each has its own specific role to play in the cosmos. Once the spoken things are deployed in God's breath, they move back to their origin in a series of stages. One might call this an evolution that reverses the prior devolution, thereby bringing about the completion of the great circle of being. The ascending ladder of evolution reaches its furthest, its fullest outward manifestation in human beings, each of which, each of whom, has the potential to undertake an inner ascent, leading all the way back to the first intellect and beyond. This ascent is prefigured in Islam's sacred history 
by the prophet's mirage, literally his ladder. This is the famous night journey, during which the prophet rose up through the cosmos and entered into the presence of God. Now, it is clear that any worldview depends on transmitted knowledge. We think the way we do, we believe the way we believe, because of what we have received, most of it unconsciously, from our overall environment. We accept certain truths as self-evident, not because they are in fact self-evident, but because our culture has inculcated us with a way of thinking that makes them appear as self-evident. Once we step outside of our specific cultural limitations, we see that the facts, that facts and truths are self-evident only within certain contexts. Now, this statement, of course, sounds like relativism, right? Which is sometimes taken as a self-evident truth of academics. But for Ibn Arabi, to speak this way is simply to situate relative perspectival truth in the context of the absolute reality, which in itself allows for no relativism whatsoever. To relativize our own supposed certainties is to affirm the most basic of all truths, the only truth that is completely self-evident to a healthy human soul. That truth is that there is nothing truly real but the real. Nothing truly exists but the one being. Or, as the transmitted learning puts it, there is no God but God. Now, if we keep on believing in what we have received by hearsay, after having reflected on the fact that it is, after all, only hearsay, this is no doubt because we trust the source from which we have heard it. The ulama take such trust as an important asset of the believer. Those who subscribe to the religion, they say, need to have taqlid, imitation. This is because people must imitate the knowledge of their teachers in order to have access to the religion's founding scriptures. In the science of jurisprudence, the word taqlid has a, the more specific meaning of following the authority of a jurist, someone who is supposed to have achieved a complete mastery of Islamic law. Notice, however, that the imitation discussed in jurisprudence pertains only to the sharia, that is, to the do's and the don'ts that have been established by the jurists over the centuries on the basis of the scriptural sources. People need to have such imitation in order to perform Islamic rites and to observe the sacred law. But you cannot imitate the jurists or anyone else in the foundational article of faith, that is, tawhid, the assertion that God is one. In other words, if you believe in God's unity because someone told you to do so, that is no better than not believing in it. As the theologians maintain, faith demands acknowledgement of the truth in the heart. Not blind acceptance. The intellectual tradition takes this mindful acknowledgement of Tawheed as the first stage of recognizing the real. 
Now, the Muslim philosophers had no quarrel with the notion that religious guidance is transmitted and it must be learned as such. They insisted, however, that intellectual knowing cannot be achieved by way of imitation because it demands a living awareness in the heart. No matter what you may have been told about the nature of things by prophets or theologians or scientists, you cannot know the truth or falsity of what they say without discovering the reality of things within yourself. Otherwise, your knowledge remains simply hearsay. Now, discovery of the truth of things in the heart was commonly called tahqiq, realization. This word is derived from the same root as haq, which I've been translating as real, but which also means, of course, true, correct, appropriate, right, rightful due. Realization is to know the real along with the reality of things. Ibn Arabi frequently points out that the reality of a given thing is the manner in which it participates in the real being and makes rightful demands upon the subject who knows it. Ultimately, a thing's reality is the thing as known eternally by God. Hence, knowing things as they actually are demands recognizing them in the real, not outside the real. It is such recognition, Samani says, that is the heart's life with God. Now, Ibn Arabic, as you know, is usually called a Sufi. But he does not apply that word to himself, nor does he often use it to speak of others. In fact, we can just as well call him a philosopher, or a theologian, or a jurist, except that he is all of these things, and he is none of them. Given the frequency with which uh, he stresses the importance of realization, I think one of the few titles that he would approve of is muhaqiq, a realizer. Someone who has realized the truth and reality of things by recognizing them in the real and acting in the appropriate manner in the world. Ibn Arabi's most important and influential disciple, his stepson Sadruddin Qunavi, refers to his master's perspective precisely as mashrab tahqiq, that is, the school of realization. Western historians are inclined to classify the Muslim philosophers as rationalists. In order to make this claim, they need to translate the word aql, which I have been translating as intelligence or intellect, as reason. Unless we are careful about qualifying this, we will end up suggesting that aql for Avicenna meant the same thing it meant, that reason meant for Descartes. This is to ignore the ontological dimension of intelligence, a dimension that is much discussed by the philosophers and central to the Islamic worldview. It is reflected in the philosophical use of the word wujud to designate existence or being. Literally, wujud means finding and perceiving. Only by convention did it come to mean existence. It follows that recognition, which is our intelligence, finding the truth and reality of things, is not just the knowing awareness of the mind and the heart. It is also the very existence of the mind and the heart. Now, inasmuch as intelligence is identified with its source, 
it is allied with the radiance of God. It is the radiance of God. By giving systematic form to Philo, Sophia, the love of wisdom, philosophers were striving to discipline their souls and find the light of the universal intellect within themselves, thus joining with the infinite light of the one. To put it mildly, this has not been a goal of modern rationalists. But Ibn Arabi did not ally himself with the philosophers. Although he recognized the legitimacy of their pursuits, he saw the human reality as much more extensive than what the philosophers envisaged. They aimed at union with the first intellect, but he considered this a stunted view of human nature. His goal was to open people up to the boundless potential of their own selves, made in the image of the infinite being. The title of his magnum opus, El Futuhat al-Makkiyah, alludes to this goal. The word Futuhat, which means literally openings, is often uh, translated as revelations, but this would suggest that Ibn Arabi is claiming prophetic status, which is by no means the case. In fact, opening was a well-established technical term that designates a sudden lifting of the veil, which conceals the knowledge of the real present in the heart. In many passages, Ibn Arabi explains that the door to the heart will be opened only after the seeker has patiently knocked, a process that typically takes years and carries no guarantee of success, not least, uh, at least not before death. The way to knock is to follow in the footsteps of the prophet, not just in terms of external activity, but even more so in terms of inner realization, a realization symbolized precisely by his miraj, his ascent to God. The ultimate goal is to achieve the status of the perfect human being, al-insan al-kamil, who stands in what Ibn Arabi often calls the Mohammedan station. This station embraces every possible human perfection, not least the stations achieved by the greatest exemplars of human possibility, that is, the 124,000 prophets, especially Adam, Abraham, Moses, and Jesus, by special roles in Ibn Arabi. As for Muhammad, given that he reached every possible human perfection, his station encompassed all the perfections of all the prophets. So the Mohammedan station is the fullest possible manifestation of divine and human perfection in the universe. Well, Ibn Arabi's great book, The Meccan Openings, is nothing if not a delineation of the multifarious dimensions of the Mohammedan station. He wanted to point to these prophetic stations and perfections so that people might aspire to them. The book is a God's eye view of all the gates to realization, all the possible ways of coming to be who we are in our deepest selves. It is a catalog of the standpoints of those who have achieved recognition and the life of the heart summarized under the headings of the book's 560 chapters. Even if Ibn Arabi frequently points out that he is only alluding to bits and pieces of the vision granted to the realizers in any given station. 
Ibn Arabi stressed on the importance of the prophets as the sources of guidance and the path of realization cannot be overestimated. One of the many places where this can be seen is in the manner in which he distances himself from the philosophers. I began by saying that intellectual knowledge is the object of a quest shared by philosophers and Sufis. Both groups are striving for knowledge of the real along with insight into how to put this knowledge into practice. In other words, both philosophers and Sufis set themselves the task of understanding the absolute haq, the real, and learning how to give each thing its own relative haq, its rightful due. The philosophers held that they could achieve realization by disciplining the soul and actualizing the intellect. But Ibn Arabi criticized them for thinking that they could see reality in its wholeness with only one eye of the heart. In fact, he said the heart has two eyes, not just the eye of intellect. The great philosophical thinkers skillfully utilize the intellectual eye to see the reality of God's necessity and transcendence. But the heart has a second eye, which is illuminating imagination. Only this eye can perceive the reality of God's imminence and his presence in all things. The role of the prophets in history was to provide the means to open both eyes and to see the real with a balanced vision of transcendence and imminence. Reliance on intellect alone which understands transcendence but falls flat in grasping imminence, prevents full realization of the human potential. Thus, Ibn Arabi criticizes the philosophers while acknowledging that they are correct in their vision of the necessary existence. In chapter 167 of the Meccan openings that James Morris, for example, has written about, uh, Ibn Arabi employs the language of imagination and symbolism to provide an extensive description of the contrast between those who see with the eye of intellectual discrimination and those who see with both the eye of intellect and the eye of imagination. He calls this chapter on recognizing the alchemy of felicity. Felicity is a term used by philosophers to translate the Greek word eudaimonia, the happiness that is to be attained by the seeker of wisdom. It is also the standard term or one of the standard terms for salvation in Islamic theology because of the Quranic verse saying that at the resurrection people will be divided into two groups, the felicitous and the wretched. Now Ibn Arabi's chapter on the alchemy of Felicity provides a long account of a philosopher and a follower of the prophet who set out together to climb the ladder of creation to God. Just as the celestial spheres represent the descending stages of manifestation, so also they represent the ascending steps of perfection. The route that the two companions follow in Ibn Arabi's account is the same that is set down in the prophet's miraj his journey up through the seven spheres and eventually into the divine presence. Now, when the two companions reach the sphere of the moon, 
The philosopher is granted an understanding of the, the very nature of the moon by the moon's own spirituality, ruhaniya. That is, the intelligible reality that the visible moon represents. In contrast, the follower is introduced to Adam, the prophet whom Muhammad met in the sphere of the moon during his ascent. Thus the philosopher comes to understand the function of the moon in relation to the entire cosmos, whereas the follower achieves realization of the diverse knowledge actualized by Adam when he was taught all the names. The philosopher, in other words, sees the first heaven in terms of the eye of intellect, whereas the follower sees the first heaven in terms of both eyes, both intellect and the illuminated imagination. At each level of ascent through the spheres, the two companions meet similar scenes. The philosopher is presented with the dry bones of abstract, rational understanding, and the follower is opened up to the flesh and blood of the imaginal realm. The philosopher remains tied back by his intellect. And of course, the word ach comes from ekal, or the same root, which means a fetter. And the follower is opened up to the multiple dimensions of the divine self-disclosure by encountering the spiritual realities of the prophets who reside in the spheres. Once the two companions finish traversing the seven spheres, the philosopher is held back from going beyond the manifest universe. For intellect, despite its ability to see into the spiritual realm, and to grasp to heed has many limitations. The eye of imagination, however, is receptive to realities far outside the scope of intellect. For, as Ibn Arabi explains, that eye, this eye in our heart, opens up into the external world of imagination itself, the only realm of reality that embraces everything other than God. Ibn Arabi clearly addressed this chapter to an audience that was familiar with the philosophical quest uh, to achieve union with the first intellect. His purpose was to show that true recognition of self and God will be found not simply by developing the intellect, but only through realization of the real in the footsteps of the guides sent by the real. In other terms, he is saying that it is not sufficient to actualize the knowledge designated by the formula of Tawheed, there is no God but God, even if this knowledge guarantees salvation. He says this in a number of places. To achieve the fullness of human nature, the status of the perfect human being standing in the Mohammedan, uh, who stands in the Mohammedan station, one must also realize within oneself the knowledge embraced by the second formula of faith. Muhammad is God's messenger. Now, in another account of this ascent to God, of the ascent to God, Ibn Arabi tells the story in the first person. And he suggests with a bit more clarity what exactly the seeker is striving to achieve. I can't go into details, but... To summarize, after spending a few pages describing the stages of his own climb in Muhammad's footsteps, he summarizes 
what occurred in these words. In this journey, I gained the meanings of all the divine names. I saw that they all go back to one named object, one entity. That named object was what I was witnessing. And that entity was my own existence. So my journey had been only in myself. I have provided no indication of anything but myself. Now this last sentence can stand for the entire contents of the Meccan openings. Ibn Arabi's grand catalog of the doorways to the real. I repeat, I have provided no indication of anything but myself. The self in question, however, is the human essence, created in the image of God and receptive to every name taught by the divine teacher. Recognizing this self, to whatever extent one is able to do so, brings forth intimations of the life of the heart. Such recognition will never come by blind imitation of jurists and theologians, not to speak of the thinkers and dreamers of our own times. It will only come by patient knocking at the door. Thank you.